You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 6, Debates. My favorite thing to discuss is debates. When I was writing this book, this was the chapter that I felt anchored everything else around it, because from debates, we could talk about pretty much anything. We could talk about where movements found themselves collectively on a specific issue. We could talk about the failures or the gaps or the limits of our social action. We could talk about what leadership looks like and and who's allowed to be a leader and what kind of discussion needs to go into determining who and what is leadership. But most importantly, progressive social activism is struggle. And for me, struggle means struggling not just against a system, not just for things to get better, not just against injustice, but struggling also means that we need to struggle internally in our movements together. And struggle really comes down to debate. Do we have this event on this night or in this night? Do we have it at this location or at that location? Is this going to be our demands or will that be our demands? Are we going to target these individuals or are we going to target this corporation? Who's going to be around the table? What does that table look like? When does it happen? These are the kinds of discussions that any time you are involved in social movement activism, you find yourself wrapped up in. And through debates, we are able to come up with arguments that are air tight, that don't just make it impossible for our opposition to try and paint us as being unrealistic or uneducated or ignorant or whatever, but also that gives us the tools that we need to be able to convince other people of our ideas. You do all of this through debating, and the art of having a productive and good faith debate is fundamental to how the left operates. It's fundamental to how we build our movements and how we determine what is the best way forward. When I was writing Take Back the Fight, this chapter on debates was the was the one that I felt most I don't know, passionate about maybe, or the one that I thought had the most possibility to teach or to explore uh, something that I think a lot of people really struggle with. How do we hold debates? And how has the digital age made debating really, really difficult? I wrestled with this a lot. And I think that the solution to the question that I just posed is actually really basic that for proper debates, we need to make sure that we have spaces that are as free of oppression as possible, that everyone is as on the same page as possible, meaning they have all the same information, and they're able to put ideas forward in a way that when met with other ideas, no one has felt like they've lost or they're being attacked. But instead, We've actually gone through a process, whether that's a meeting or whether that's um, a campaign or whatever, that in the end, we come out better armed and more capable of having discussions and debates. 
When I was involved in the student movement, one of the things that we had to learn early on was how to perfect your 30-second argument, your 10-second argument, your two-minute argument, and your 10-minute argument. I mean, we didn't think of it like that. That's very um, formulaic. We weren't that formulaic about it. But it, it was true because if you were talking to people as they were walking by you, You can have those arguments in your back pocket for why, when I was a student, we wanted free tuition fees or why, you know, when I was doing work uh, with um, $10 minimum wage or or $13 minimum wage or whatever (laughs) the various iterations of that campaign have been as the cost of living goes up and as we need the minimum wage to rise, you learn very quickly how to read someone and how to anticipate what they're about to say. And that learning is so critical because it does mean that you can perfect your argument in 10 seconds. You have 10 seconds. How are you going to defend this? How are you going to defend a higher minimum wage? How are you going to defend lower tuition fees? How are you going to explain what feminism looks like today to someone who's never really thought about it? And then you go up in time because sometimes you meet people that have other questions or sometimes you meet people who are sympathetic, but they just are cautious or they're skeptical that it could happen. Or sometimes you meet someone that really wants to argue it out and have a a really uh, deep debate that might go past 10 minutes. How do you craft that kind of debate? All of these things are skills that you have to learn. No one is born with the capacity to debate without having to refine it and practice it. And through refining and practicing our debating skills, we are then able to bring our movement's demands to a broader public. And when we're not doing that work internally, then we find ourselves stuck. We can't get out of the debate that we might have found ourselves in because we're not sure where the exit door is depending on how the debate has unrolled. One of the things that social media has done is that it has turned debates into a minefield, into a toxic location where people get burned, where people get called out, where you feel overwhelmed or tired or frustrated or angry. And sometimes it's at someone that you're not sure they're even real. Sometimes there's someone who you absolutely know, but there's no way to reach across that argument and get past whatever issue is, is standing in between you and this other person. I think we don't talk enough about how social media toxicity is not the same thing as having difficult debates. We've been trained to have our discussions and debates in public fora where everything is ramped up to the maximum degree, where things are taken out of context, where people are afraid to say something that isn't fully thought out or that might come across as being inappropriate or whatever. We need spaces where people can have difficult discussions and not feel afraid to say what's on their mind, whether what's on their mind needs to be changed through the process of debate or whether what's on their mind is correct and other people are going to agree with them. But social media has taken that away from us, and we need to be very clear-minded about how difficult some of these discussions can be when we're having them on these platforms. Um, And of course, not all platforms are, are, are created equally. There are some platforms where you can have a debate, like like teleconference or live platforms where you're having voice debates, or maybe you're having a live chat, where you are sometimes able to have difficult discussions without it turning into very divisive and toxic spaces. But this is a very new feature of the digital world. 
the fact that we go to digital platforms more often than we would have a debate in real life with someone over a matter of politics rather than a debate about supper or a debate about what's the best way to get from place A to place B. (laughs) The fact that we move to social media platforms means that oftentimes when we think about debate, we think instantly about social media. And then all of the popular culture ways to try and make it sound as if it's impossible to actually have proper debate become true. Because all of us have had that experience online of being misunderstood or being in a discussion that got ramped up to 11 before you even knew what the subject may have been. We need to get better at debate, which means we need to get used to having discussions where we can disagree with one another and still call one another comrades. We need to look for ways to get past uh, trying to score social capital points on social media as if that's a way to create anything, as if that's a way to create anything other than maybe one's personal brand that does nothing for social movements. And it certainly doesn't do anything to bring other people along. Instead, they probably look at this and say, whoa, I don't want to get caught in the crossfire of this discussion. I'm going to remove myself entirely. <laughs> Having spaces for debates allows us to practice, to practice being wrong, to, to practice refining what we're saying And allow ourselves to get used to being corrected or being refined or moving along together in the spirit of solidarity, trying to build an idea outwards from this discussion that we might be collectively having. This becomes impossible to do on certain social media platforms because those platforms monetize making the opposite come true. They monetize our disagreements and our flame wars, and they want us to always respond, not with, okay, let's, let's try to meet in the middle, but instead they want us to respond with, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to ramp it up to, to five. I'm going to ramp it now up to seven. I'm going to ramp it up now to 11. Learning to debate also resists the, the tendency of disposability that, that has definitely set in in society in general. I mean, we live in a capitalist society, so it's not surprising that that people are so easily disposed. It's not a tenet of the left, but it is something that that left-wing people engage with from time to time, often, again, because a lot of our conversations are mitigated by these social media platforms. Whenever I record these episodes, I ask Fazila Jiwa, who's the editor of Take Back the Fight, for uh, feedback and for her ideas. And I just have to quote what she said to me in reaction to the first draft of this episode. In thinking through the locations that we, that we must recreate to have difficult discussions, she says, Through generous and enthusiastic debate and social movements, we model to each other what we want these transformed social relationships and structures to look like. There is no other way for me to paraphrase that without actually quoting it directly, because I think that is so wonderful. Exactly. These spaces are where we practice. These spaces are where we model the kind of society that we want to see in the world. And we cannot rely on for-profit private platforms that we know like literally create this the the conditions for fascism to thrive to be the way through which we mitigate our relationships. This episode is going to talk about the importance of debate and how debate has underpinned what feminism is and how feminism is expressed. 
the ways in which debate can be fulfilling and constructive, but also the ways in which debate can be destructive and hurtful, and how we have to build spaces to avoid that. At the start of the chapter on debates in Take Back the Fight, I write about a debate within the Fédération des Femmes de Québec as an example of the kind of place that feminists often need to have discussions, conversations, and debate. In that case, I looked at the way in which feminists organized through the FFQ debated religious accommodations and religious symbols. And so in the 1990s, Quebec society was engaged in this hubbub around reasonable accommodation. So in 1994, the student shows up at school wearing hijab. And within Quebec society at the time, there was not instant condemnation that she had been denied access to school. Instead, the FFQ and, of course, other organizations didn't immediately condemn the decision to send this girl home for wearing hijab. The Human Rights Commission and Status of Women Quebec took a position before the FFQ saying that the student faced discrimination for being sent home and that there was a need to have a reasonable accommodation, a.k.a. allow the student to go to school wearing hijab. So a year later in 1995, at the annual general meeting of the FFQ, the organization adopted a motion to engage in reflection and debate on re religious fundamentalism and to fight the, what they said, quote, manifestations of intolerance, repression, and a lack of respect for women's rights and minority groups. So in 1995, the prevailing opinion of the FFQ, a mostly white, almost entirely white francophone organization of feminists, considered religious symbols worn by women, worn by Muslim women to be oppressive. And so this is where we're starting from in the 1990s. At that general meeting, they convoked a committee that was called Tolerance Intolerance. And in the reflection document, it's very, very obvious that the vast majority of people writing this reflection document are white and have no relationship at all with Muslim feminists. When I was reading this document and the, the documents that came out of that committee, Tolerance and Tolerance, it was very obvious that the, that the feminists around the FFQ at the time did not understand that there were women in Quebec who wore hijab. And a lot of the way that they were discussing this was internationally looking. So specifically looking at countries where women were forced to wear hijab. And that was forming the basis of the analysis within the FFQ of religious symbols being oppressive. They didn't revisit their position from 1995 after the religious accommodations discussion and after the, the creation of this committee until 2009. So this was an issue that, uh, thanks to Quebec's far-right media ecosystem, it became a scandal. And, and the women's movement did not play the positive role that it needed to play to push back against those voices. Two years before they revisited that position in 2009, a letter was published in Le Devoir, signed by 14 members of the FFQ, supported by the president of the FFQ at the time, Michel Asselin. And it deplored how media was furthering the stigmatization of the, in their coverage of reasonable accommodations. So then you start to see there's a bit of an awareness among the feminists within the FFQ that maybe this frame is actually feeding Islamophobia. 
and of course, from the post 9-11 period. And so the rise of Islamophobia is undeniable. But there was still not enough organizing within the FFQ to make sure that women who were hijab, racialized women, uh, were actually present in the debates. And so it was still very much like white women making pronunciations based on what they were seeing from within society and around the world. Then in 2008, and this is what prompted the FFQ to change its position in 2009, there was a commission that was called the Bouchard-Taylor Commission, named after its two commissioners, that sought um, the public's participation in figuring out what this, the Quebec state's relationship with religion needs to be. This commission had the second highest number of submissions to a commission in Quebec's history, just after the 1995 Commission on the Future of Quebec, which was, of course, just before the referendum. There were 3,423 people who participated in it in 22 regional forums, and they received 901 submissions. And you can imagine these submissions ran the gamut from uh, anti-racist activists and organizations saying this is discriminatory and needs to be, uh, you know, all bans on wearing religious symbols needs to be opposed and that kind of thing. And then you have the, the, the other side of people saying that it should be illegal to wear religious symbols in public. And so in 2008, the Bouchard-Taylor Commission finds what they consider at the time to be a balance within Quebec society. And the balance was that public displays of religion are fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But in positions of coercive authority, people should not be allowed to wear religious symbols. And the way that they define coercive authority was prison guards, police officers, judges, crown prosecutors, and the president of the National Assembly. And so when the Bouchard-Taylor Commission comes out with this position, a lot of people on the left who were not engaging in discussions about Islamophobia with Muslims themselves, I think breathed a sigh of relief and were able to say, okay, the Bouchard-Taylor Commission has done all this work, they've studied the issue, and we are good with what their recommendations are. And so it became the default position for a lot of progressive organizations within Quebec society, the FFQ included. By 2009, just as in 1995, there were very few racialized members of the executive committee at the FFQ, uh, and certainly uh, very, very few, if any, uh, women who wore hijab. And so, again, this is an organization that hadn't evolved to be able to have a debate on this issue in a way that actually heard from the people most impacted by it. And things didn't really change. I mean, by 2009, this had been a discussion that had been all over Quebec media for more than 10 years. And there was a, a fatigue around uh, continuously having this debate because the far right was was owning the debate. And it was very hard for the left to get its head around um, what the correct position should be. It's important to remember that this is a society where the Catholic Church really did control everybody's day-to-day -day life. If a woman was not having enough children, the priest would come and knock on her door and say, why are you not having enough children? Have you been having abortions? And would really control women's reproductive uh, re women's reproduction in that way, in, in these comments, public comments about how women were not having enough children. And so this, I don't mention that to, to justify, obviously, the, the Islamophobia, but it's, it was coming from a place where the society had such a long and bad relationship with religion that it then creates another kind of oppression on another marginalized group within Quebec society. 
And by 2016, the far right is rising and violence is rising within the province of Quebec. And 2017, that violence hits a crisis moment when a gunman walks into the Centre Culturel Islamique de Quebec and, and kills six worshippers. After the shooting attack in St. Foy, Charles Taylor from the Bouchard-Taylor Commission renounced his position uh, on religious symbols, and he admitted that they were wrong to support any ban at all. Now, because this had been the default position for so many progressive organizations, this set off a lot of discussion and debate and then re-debate on this position. So, you know, now we are at 2017, more than 20 years after the first um, incident that led to the religious accommodation debate in the first place. So by 2018, at a special general meeting, the FFQ changed its position to no longer support banning religious symbols for any workplace, including those in positions of coercive power. The CSN, one of Quebec's na uh, National Union Federations, made the same decision that same month. Quebec Solidaire made the same decision uh, a couple of months later in March 2019. So the way that this debate happened, uh, the, the FFQ would not have been able to resolve its terrible positions from the past without reconsidering and re-debating and, and rehashing these kinds of discussions as the organization, of course, had to open itself up and become you know, more diverse and make sure that there, that it wasn't just this white woman's organization making pronunciations of what is and what is not discriminatory. The women's movement should have been on the front lines defending that student's right in 1994 to wear hijab, and they should have had a better position, but they didn't. What they did have, though, were structures in place to be able to have a discussion to, to correct that, that opinion. And we can argue about whether or not that took too long, and I agree that that took way too long. It should have happened earlier, but it did happen. It happened thanks to the internal capacity that the organization had to debate, re-debate, re-debate, re-discuss. And when you don't have a space like that, changing your position or arguing out through positions can become very, very difficult. And so now I'm going to read from Take Back the Fight. And this is, these are my words. Within a social movement context, debate is the foundation of our movements, and it has a long and rich history in exporting popular knowledge into theories, frameworks, pilot projects, strategies, everything that a social movement may advance as a solution to whatever issue. Debate is fundamental, and it's not only the debate itself that is a critical. It's also what debate does to each of us individually and to the collective as a whole as we move together or in divergent directions through the logic of a particular issue. To contend with patriarchy is to debate it. What are all the ways in which we are all impacted? How can we be most effective in our campaign to change or dismantle patriarchy? And so on. At the heart of all progressive struggles is the classic debate between reform or revolution, and it weaves itself through all aspects of our demands and our campaigns. A campaign that is hotly debated internally is a campaign that will be more likely able to withstand external pressures. Or, put another way, a campaign that was formed in absence of rigorous debate will collapse the second a political opponent attacks it. The debate helps tease out our best arguments in favor of what we are doing. To not have debates leaves us exposed with either untested proposals or a shallow sense of why we are defending a particular public policy. I go on to quote Alexa Conradi, who was the president of the FFQ for a period of time. 
And in her memoir, Fear, Love, and Liberation in Contemporary Quebec, I really liked the way that she talked about different strains of feminism and how uh, they often don't necessarily peacefully coexist, but instead require a reckoning uh, often to bring different ideas or tendencies or, or, or theories of thought uh, to, to the surface. And so here are Alexa Conradi's words. Different strains of feminism have always clashed. They, they do not necessarily have to become reconciled. They can live together and help society advance through their creative tension. There is no feminist absolute. Truth is often found in several different places at the same time. Often it emerges from such interactions. That is why I appreciate being confronted with a variety of feminist tendencies and histories. Multiple perspectives are an indication that feminism is not just a vision of women's rights. It also provides a vision of society. Debate doesn't just give us that practice uh, to, to come up with the best strategies or the best ideas. Debate also helps to form consensus. And when you have a, a, a room that is open and that is um, as diverse as possible and that everybody has what they need to participate. So you've addressed barriers within the room. You've ensured that poor people are able to participate. You've collectively ensured that it's the voices of Indigenous and Black feminists are, are centered in the discussion. Then you can create a space where that where consensus can be possible. And consensus often emerges when people have that opportunity to be together. There are rarely instances where issues are so hotly contested that you cannot reconcile them in any way. It does get difficult, though, because oftentimes we're not just debating one another, and actually oftentimes we're rarely debating one another in real life, but instead we are debating one another online. And when we're debating each other online, debates have a tendency to get a bit weird. A couple of years ago, as feminism was really taking its place on the internet, and I'm talking, you know, in 2014, 2015, 2016, there was this bizarre genre of, of, of social media posting that, that became ubiquitous, which was, am I a good feminist or am I a bad feminist? Is this activity a good activity of, of someone who's a good feminist or is this indicative of someone who is a bad feminist? And it's interesting because it was a true genre of, of, of posting. There were social media posts and blog posts and, and columns and questions given in to writers saying, you know, I wear high heels. Am I being a bad feminist? Or I want to get married. Is this a bad feminist position? Or, and this kind of thing. And it was so interesting because it was, it was never really there, wrapped up in that discussion was never really a bigger question, which was who is asking these questions? Who is telling you that these things are not feminist? Or are we just watching clickbait, feminist clickbait become something that attracts clicks? Because, of course, when a headline is, um, is it really feminist to shave your legs? Then all of a sudden people are clicking on it going, oh, I have an opinion on that, right? And so that 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 rush towards clickbait created this fake discussion about whether or not uh, these kinds of individual personal decisions or personal purchases can be truly feminist. And it was a very interesting example of what happens when debates hit the internet. Think about a situation where someone walks into a meeting and they're wearing really high heel shoes. If someone were to make a negative comment, which might happen, 
That would not likely become the focal point of the meeting unless there's underlying issues um, within the group. It might be dealt with uh, by people talking directly or on the side with the individual, or maybe it's not dealt with at all and there's a problem of, of harassment that the group needs to sort through. But it wouldn't become the issue the way that it becomes the issue online. The way that the internet changes that personal con- contact and connection that we have with one another is a is really poisonous for social movement building because the second that there's a debate that hinges on people having good faith and coming together and hearing a perspective that they're not used to hearing or whatever, things have the, t- the tendency to spin out. And of course... As we saw with the, with the FFQ debate on religious accommodations, when the majority of people who are controlling that debate, whether it's online or in real life, white feminism and white supremacy can have a huge impact on how a debate is, is happening. And so the good versus bad feminist debate discussion took up a lot of place where there otherwise could have been much more fundamental discussions related to public policies like gender-based violence that feminism would likely agree on are, are being fundamental to, to the work that we do. But they became these pop culture flashpoints that were untethered from any kind of movement structure. And they spun out in very uh, bizarre and not super helpful ways because they also then became a location for people to get really, really mad at one another. I don't know if you were around the internet in the early 2010s, but there were really vicious arguments that the second someone says that, you know, this is feminist and someone disagrees, then all of a sudden there's like a reason to to, to no longer be comrades. Like there is a reason to no longer trust one another's commitment to feminism. It's one thing for that to be kind of a sideshow or maybe the way that pop culture talks about feminism. But when in the on the other side, the level of feminist organizing is so uh, thin, is so difficult, it's being organized more through hashtags and flash events than it is through the, the slow and intentional work of movement building. Then, then that becomes a problem. And it becomes a problem because this becomes feminism in and of itself. And then all of a sudden you have young people saying, well, I don't know if I'm a feminist. I want to get married and I don't want to keep my last name, right? As if that's even a feminist debate to have that has no public policy implications, really, uh, unless you were trying to ban the ability of someone to change their last name, which no one I don't think is seriously suggesting. And so it was very distracting. And it was another example of how neoliberalism has played such havoc with feminists and feminist thought. Because outside of people who are literally studying gender theory or feminist theory within the academy, which is, I mean, not me, I never did that. I don't really know what that's like. But outside of those spaces, there there aren't any really obvious formal spaces for people to get feminist theory and to be able to put that theory into practice, which is the most important thing. So how do you put feminist theory into practice when you're sitting there having a debate around someone's high heel shoes, for example? Uh, or is it even a feminist question if someone's just like, yeah, I don't I don't think they're cool. Like, and can you say that without someone who does think they're cool getting mad? Again, when you're in a room together, I think that there's a lot more opportunity to have a, a, a normal discussion about what someone <laughs> is or isn't wearing uh, than on, online, because online it becomes a bit uh, it becomes a bigger thing than perhaps anyone intended it to. The biggest problem with the bad feminist genre was that it was localized among writers and writers who 
self-declared as feminists, you could decide whether or not you wanted to believe or agree that this writer or that writer was feminist, but it was all self-identification. And the problem, of course, with that is there's no accountability structure to make sure that someone is actually speaking with the weight of the opinions or the debates of some sort of group or collective or, or organization or whatever behind them. And so this is what I wrote in Take Back the Fight. The bad feminist debate didn't happen on the meeting floors of feminist organizations or collectives. It happened through writing by high-profile feminists. Writing about feminism is one way to debate feminism, but it's also fraught. Most authors aren't writing on behalf of a movement, and their analyses can't go further than being static think pieces without a location for the debate to continue. Writers so often become the de facto high-profile feminists because of the void created by a lack of feminist organizing. The social consensus that must be created among feminists on any issue, including the fundamental issue of what is or what is not feminist, needs to play out in public and private. But for that to be possible, we need a location to host these debates where this is possible. We see what happens to discourse when debates are held wholly on social media. Not only do discussions get hijacked, tensions raised, and tempers untempered, but the individuals engaging in the debates often find themselves the target of harassment and abuse from people outside of the debate entirely in order to silence them off whatever platform they're engaging on. Now, I should be clear. I'm not suggesting that any of the writers who engaged in the bad feminist discussions or genre aren't feminist just because they were writing about this stuff. The problem is when you have self-appointed leadership coming from writers and not coming from people who have the internal accountability that comes with social movement spokespeople, it means that whatever comes out of their mind becomes what they want to say. That's what writers do. That's what I do. And there's a place for that. But the problem is, is that editors know or knew back when this was a bigger genre online that they could get clicks out of it. And so all of a sudden, feminism was being defined by an issue that editors thought would sell books or or get clicks to the website. And it was less about what feminist activists wanted to debate uh, being debated by the individuals that they identified were the movement leadership. Having a social movement structure of some kind allows those debates to have a home somewhere and allows them to be anchored in something. It enables you to be maybe mad at a tendency that an entire group might have rather than just a single individual who might have a bad opinion on something. That's a really different engagement that you might have than um, being mad at a social media account who you may or may not have ever interacted with in real life. And having the spaces in real life to have these interactions really do allow us to get past the misunderstandings, the intentions that may be read in or read out of whatever we're writing or whatever we've said. And it doesn't allow for 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 any kind of like agreement that we are on the same side, because oftentimes, you know, we're debating, we're debating the void, we're debating people who may not exist, people who might not be who they say they are, who might not believe who they say they are. And then all of a sudden that becomes the caricature for what feminism is. It's happened many, many times. And when we have a weak feminist organizing happening in general, then there is no kind of central location to say, no, sorry, what we don't we don't actually care about about whether or not this purchase is feminist. This is not even anywhere in our realm of what's interesting to us. What is interesting to us or what is important to us are, and then of course, they'd be able to list the issues that they find important. 
And that's one of the the problems with debate, of course, is that debates don't always go properly. They don't always go well. They sometimes are impossible because there is not good faith on both sides to arrive at some sort of collective or common understanding about a particular issue. I think that that is no more obvious than when we look at the debate, I guess, and I even hesitate to call it a debate because I think it's uh, not really a debate, but there is debate about it, um, of, of trans-exclusionary feminism and the, the, the way in which TERFs have hijacked the label feminism and are continuing to pretend to be feminists, even though nothing they, they, they propose is all that feminist at all. I'm not going to get very far deep into the TERF debate Suffice it to say that the the group of people who call themselves feminists and who refuse to accept trans women as being women are, I think, like at the most generous way that we can describe them, deeply confused. And uh, and the, the worst is I think that they are violent and perpetuating violence and that I think feminists and feminist organizing needs to be very, very clear that it is going to combat turf sentiment that 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 rears its head within whatever social movement uh, space or structure that might exist. The Canadian context of turf fascists, and yes, I tend to call them turf fascists more than I call them turfs because policing the gender binary to the extent that they want is a fascist tactic. The the way that the ideas espoused by turf fascists uh, in Canada is is different than in the United Kingdom. There, there's far less of a mainstream in the feminist movement acceptance of these positions as, of being uh, correct positions. In Canada, it has far more often been the case that it's right-wing movements that have been virulently anti-trans and that have been po- like organizing around anti-trans politics. The most obvious example of this was how Jordan Peterson came to his fame when he came to his fame. And he decided to use this pronoun discussion uh, based on expanding uh, gender expression and gender identity to the to the, the federal human rights legislation. And so uh, Jordan Peterson was able to use that as the launching pad to his completely bizarre and, f- and whatever career. By and large, you will see turf fascist ideology and, 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 and beliefs far more on the right in Canada. So whether that's within the People's Party of Canada or, or even in the Conservative Party as well or among um, the, the fans of Jordan Peterson. But there's no question that there's also not enough being done by feminists to fight these ideas and to fight these sentiments. And so in the book, I write this. TERFs derive power from the vacuum of feminist organizing and enjoy a lack of coordinated and amplified criticism. The feminist movement should be the location where TERFism could be debated, consensus built, and leadership identified to push back against the rhetoric from websites like TERF-friendly Feminist Current. Instead, the work is left mostly to trans activists who must constantly intervene in a debate that places their identity as women below some fictitious global women's experience, which stands as the premise for excluding them entirely. A lack of debate to help strengthen movement response to this kind of hatred has helped let it grow. 
That lack of debate, I think, is really, really important for us to think about. What kinds of, of responses, collective responses, would we have to turf fascism or would we have to trans people's civil rights in this country if we had a, a united, national, kind of coordinated movement space, let's say, for feminists to be able to have discussions like this? You know, you can imagine either a turf fascist shows up at a meeting and says, well, I want to limit the definition of women to this, uh, and that there'd be no willingness to have that discussion because it's totally inappropriate and totally bigoted, or maybe there would be a kind of discussion and some sort of of, of debate would, would, it would ensue that would allow for that tendency to be just pushed out instantly because it really has no basis in actual feminism. When you actually have discussions um, and someone has really no idea, let's say, they've never really considered any of these issues, I think that the obvious result is, no, no, like why would we create a new class of oppressed woman in this country. Like, that doesn't make any sense from a feminist perspective. But again, we don't have these spaces. And so turf fascists are able to operate as if they 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 can say they're feminists because they got that somewhere, they got that label somewhere um, and, and not be challenged by organized feminists unless it's in, like, situations where there's a flashpoint, like with the Toronto Public Library, for example. But we can see this with someone like Margaret Atwood, who has been um, very uh, routinely flirting with turf fascism. And the only way that people are able to push back against her is on social media. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't push back on, uh, on social media. You know, that's obviously a location where we can have these discussions because she's using social media to be a turf fascist. But it's not sufficient because, one, I mean, you know, no, no one is is obliged to read their social media replies, and they're certainly not obliged to reply to your discussion or your debate. And two, it's a very difficult platform to actually have any kind of discussion. I don't know if there's any goodwill on Margaret Atwood's side to to have a discussion about uh, about what female identity means right now and have her position moved. I don't know, but she's a very powerful feminist icon in Canada and finding ways for feminists to be able to say, you know, here with a united voice, Margaret Atwood does not reflect the positions of contemporary feminists and she's speaking on her on her own behalf. That would change the public conversation about what Atwood says and it would change it importantly that, well, Atwood has been publicly denounced by feminists in a formal way, not just that she gets ratioed or not just that she had a lot of people getting mad. But when there's a formal response to that kind of comment or that kind of public intervention, it's a lot harder for the right to say, well, this is just a bunch of angry leftists because it's feminists themselves saying, you know, the feminist movement in Canada identifies that all women are women, all women are women. And this is also how we create space for non-binary individuals. And this is also how we're going to fight for policy changes in legislatures uh, and parliament across Canada. That should be the work that feminist organizing is able to do. But by and large, and for most of us, we don't have these spaces. Without a movement, it becomes impossible to arrive at consensus on whether or not something that someone like Margaret Atwood might say about turf fascists is a position that feminists can say, we reject that. As I've referenced in previous episodes, some of the best definitions of feminism isn't a definition in and of itself, but that space where debates can happen and where conflicting uh, or contradictory positions might exist, but that 
at some level, after lots of room for discussion and exploration and debate, a kind of consensus emerges. And then from that consensus, there are actors that can be from the outside saying that this consensus doesn't reflect me for these reasons, or it's too radical, or it's not radical enough. That, that all feeds into feminism in general. But like I said about the self-appointed feminists who often tend to be writers, there's no way to challenge, to challenge the legitimacy of, to poke holes through the, the logical uh, problems with the perspective of someone when they're not connected at all to a movement and when that movement doesn't really exist to do that. And so rather than creating spaces where debates can create new kinds of ideas, new kinds of identities, new kinds of understanding how active feminism looks in modern Canada, we're left with individualized voices saying this is feminism and this is not feminism. That looks a lot more like gatekeeping than a national forum or space or whatever where lots of different perspectives spend a lot of time defining and redefining what certain words mean. The result of these debates is knowledge, which is what I discuss in the next episode. And it's that knowledge that then lays the, the basis for social change, social action, for social policy, and for creating a kind of change in the world that most feminists could reasonably call feminist. That's your episode for this week. This episode was written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me as well, except for this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. If you liked what you hear, make sure you share this with everybody you've ever met and ask them to do the same. This podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out all of Harbinger's left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. You